Welcome to the Farm Commons Podcast, where we make farm law accessible and actionable for sustainable farmers and ranchers, as well as their networks of support. I'm Eva. And I'm Kate. In each episode, we explore real legal issues faced on farms every day, providing key knowledge and tangible solutions to help you grow a thriving agricultural business. From managing liability to navigating tough conversations with landlords and neighbors, we've got your back. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. It's Eva here. I'm excited to introduce our podcast guest today, Michelle Week, who is one of our 2022 Farm Commons Fellows. Michelle is the farmer of Good Rain Farm, a mixed vegetable farm with an emphasis on indigenous first foods from across Turtle Island, serving the greater Portland metro area in Oregon. In this episode, she orates her story of what she calls her ongoing escapade, searching for permanent and sustained land access and stewardship. She shares hard-earned wisdom gained from multiple leasing relationships, her goals for permanent land tenure in the future, and tips for tenant farmers to assure that their investments in the land are protected. Michelle's is a tough yet moving story of an indigenous woman farming and persevering within modern day constraints, while also being a big proponent of having your legal ducks in a row. Now let's hear from Michelle. Why? Host Sihlahas Isquis Michelle Kin Sinai. Hello, good day. My name is Michelle Week. I am Sinai or Arrow Lakes by way of Kaville Confederate Tribes. I use she her pronouns. I am a 2022 Farm Commons Farmer Fellow, joining a cohort of amazing women this year who openly and vulnerably shared our stories and insights for managing legal risk on our farms. Today's podcast is an extension of our collaboration and exploration of legal farm resiliency together. I am the owner and operator of a mixed vegetable community-supported agricultural farm called Hasquiet, which translates from my native language to Good Rain Farm. We have an emphasis on indigenous first foods from across Turtle Island, and we serve the greater Portland metro area. Today, I will be discussing my ongoing experience searching for permanent and sustained land access and stewardship. No doubt, this is a broad and complicated experience for so many farmers. As an indigenous woman farming within modern day constraints, I assure you, I have some thoughts. And contrary to what my peers, colleagues, and friends might say, I don't love legal documentation. However, not a single tribal treaty has ever been fully respected. And the USDA has been a very discriminatory lender, as several court rulings have affirmed, specifically regarding Native farmers, look into Keep Siegel versus Vilsack verdict. And yet, despite all of this, I'm a huge proponent for having all your legal ducks in as straight of a row as possible. Documents such as a lease are so very important for the establishment, transparency, and ability to refer back to the relational boundaries that you and your landlord had set. I'm a tenant farmer, like so many young farmers of modern day society, and I have been renting land from the very beginning. Our first farmland was actually on family land. We paid no monetary rent. However, I agreed to support 
with house and pet sitting, landscaping, and maintenance. I was still exploring the feasibility and reality of what it would be to run a farm, and for the first year, this arrangement was, mm, it was okay. What I thought was a privilege quickly turned into a nightmare. Without a formal lease, the conditions surrounding my access to the land were quickly changing, particularly around a very basic human need, restroom access. I was starting to get whiplash. Responsibilities were stacking on top of each other. Mowing the lawn turned into pruning wisteria and weeding and planting in the decorative borders. I was being asked to spend my own money fixing the porch and backyard fence line. Every time I succeeded in managing the additional responsibility, more were piled on, taking away from my time working in the actual production fields of my farm business. I was being dragged down by this work and unable to fully realize my farm goals. I researched leases and explored websites like Washington Farm Trust and Oregon Farm Link. These organizations aim to support farmers by connecting them to farm-friendly landlords, which has rarely been the case for me. So I approached my family with a lease, scheduled several meetings for discussion, made edits. Ultimately, after five revisions or so, I realized that there was no intent of my landowning family to sign the lease. It was the middle of the season, and I resigned myself to continue through the summer, but began looking for land elsewhere. A month later, the aforementioned restroom concern blew up literally in my face. A family member, red in the face, let out all their frustration, yelling, spit-flying, physically encroaching on my personal bubble. (sighs) Farming is hard enough. No farmer needs the addition of mental and emotional abuse and stress that walking on eggshells comes with, especially when trying to access your farm business. The FarmLink websites did not turn up any solid leads, but through word of mouth, the farm relocated about a mile down the road. This time, I acquired a signed lease, and I'm glad I did. It formalized our relationship and kept my equipment safe, as well as added a layer of insurance protection. In my lease, I asked to see the landlord's insurance as well as disclosed my own. Good Rain Farm was only on this second property for about nine months before we were served with an eviction notice over a storage dispute. Apparently, my power tools and wicker baskets for farmer's markets weren't considered reasonable and legitimate farm equipment. (laughs) So, for all my efforts to write a reasonable and detailed lease, host multiple meetings to review and edit, here we were again. My lease requires landlords to go through the effort of writing a formal letter, mailing it to me, and having to adhere to a 30-day grace period for me to fully leave the premise. Given that this occurred in October, and I hadn't planted any crops such as garlic at that location, it was easy enough for me to pack up and move again. I had already kind of caught the hint. We had, by this time, also gained access to a third and fourth rental property. A quick addition to what I just said, I do insist on a clause in my leases that I am given reasonable access to existing crops so that if I am evicted in the middle of a growing season, I am able to keep those crops alive and return for a final harvest. I encourage everyone to ensure that they have this access to their investment of time, money, 
and are able to harvest that and recoup some of the cost. That's your livelihood, and you need to ensure its protection. Ultimately, that is the goal of all these documents. Very few of us are able to recall verbatim all the conversations and decisions and agreements we come to throughout the course of operating a business. There's just too many decisions to track. (laughs) Documenting such agreements will protect all that you've worked hard for, keeping written notes and following up with emails after are exceptionally useful when agreements appear to be threatened or breached, um, whether that's purposeful or not. We are all forgetful. Being able to return to these documents has helped calm emotional and stressful conversations in my experience. There is so much more clarity when what was agreed to in conversation is written, and we can then move towards resolving the conflict within the boundaries we had already set back when we were all in a good frame of mind. Farm Commons has had the most helpful and relevant info I have found around farm leases. I can talk much longer on what makes a good lease and clauses I would recommend in them, but really, truly, Farm Commons has what y'all need. And links to references will be in the show notes. I, like many small business owners, jumped in with two feet, learning and doing simultaneously. I operated on default sole proprietorship mode for many years as I explored the feasibility of the farm business. Under our current lease, we are very restricted in the commerce and activities we are allowed to engage in and to some extent what infrastructure and equipment we are able to utilize. It's a current and ongoing point of contention that so far I've been able, along with fellow farmer peers in the program, to call out my landlords around these really restrictive controlling measures on the infrastructure and equipment I can bring onto the property. And that's been another point for written documentation, (laughs) to have that all written down and something we can all point towards um, and reference. I've recently transitioned the business to an LLC for the additional protection it affords me and my business as we acquire more assets and our revenue grows. Um, It becomes more important that we protect our business through a, a proper legal structure. I wish I could say now that we are conflict free at the farm, but in reality, conflicts are part of relationships. And so it's no surprise that we still have conflicts with landlords. Protecting myself and the business more thoroughly became a higher priority so that these conflicts don't hurt me or my business as severely. I had known that agriculture was a very male-dominated and white-centered industry before I ever got into farming, but when I began to intentionally focus our farm on indigenous foods, indigenous sovereignty, cultural revitalization, it cracked open the uncomfortable realities of land theft, of genocide, white supremacy, patriarchy, and the colonialism that exists all around us. In fact, as an indigenous woman farming, focusing on indigenous food sovereignty and reclaiming ancestral knowledge and practicing traditional ecological knowledge, it's become clear to me that not only are my landlords misinformed about the indigenous basis and foundational teachings of organic, regenerative, environmental stewardship, our very government 
isn't a fan of my continued and loud existence. It's an overwhelming sensation to survive the navigation of both an alien government on stolen land within the imposed economic system of capitalism while navigating the grief and the frustration that wells up inside my chest with every backhanded compliment, gaslighting, mansplaining sentence aimed to feed my imposter syndrome. And in response, I've continued to hone in on boundary setting, returning again and again to the spaces in which I am able to validate and develop parity between my efforts and the government's requests while protecting my mental health and ensuring an intergenerational business that will hopefully live beyond me and support Native farmers and nourish our Native community far into the future. To ensure such a successful plan, my farm can't rely on leases alone. We need to reclaim stolen Native land. And as I said in the intro, ensure our continued permanent and sustained land access and stewardship of the land. I would rather not call this ownership. It's not in our ancestral teachings to own this living, breathing landscape or deny any other living creature a right to its home and shelter. But that's what this is. Ownership is what would currently ensure our access and rights to grow food on the land in this space and place and time. (laughs) As I've researched more into land ownership and explored loans and mortgages, I've become even more frustrated. I regret letting go of my W-2 employment, not transitioning the farm to an LLC sooner, and I'm very eager to file the appropriate federal IRS taxation designation to be an S-Corp. Through this research, it's come into sharp focus just how disadvantaged the average American is when it comes to affording housing and other basic needs when we are left to compete in the same market as large corporations. Ultimately, it's known and accepted that farmers are asset-heavy and cash-poor. We don't typically have large sums of money available for down payments from our farming activities. Those new and beginning farmers with crushing student loan and or health care debt can't afford to enter into the industry. Those like myself and peers who've chosen to attempt to make a living farming are struggling to raise and earn the capital needed to earn a profit that would allow us to afford the cost of land. In Oregon alone, the average farm property in 2022 was on the market for three to four months. Currently, because I'm operating a commercial farm business, I am ineligible for the USDA Rural Development Home Loans as we've begun to learn more about the FSA farm loan programs. We've we've quickly learned that the FSA lack of pre-approval abilities, shout out Farm Build 2023 goals, means there's no way that such loans will move quickly enough in this fast-paced competitive real estate market. (laughs) I've heard some real horror stories from farmers where the FSA loan process took upwards of nine or so months. Meanwhile, properties for sale can receive and accept offers in a matter of hours in some cases. (sighs) One of the requirements for FSA loans uh, for folks out there is to be denied a mortgage from a traditional lender. Out of curiosity and eagerness to push through the system, I've attempted this route. I learned a lot through the process. Alongside a Fannie Mae home ownership free online course, I highly recommend. And I hear that it may even help you look good on the paperwork to have taken this Fannie Mae class for home ownership. 
Mainly what I learned from applying for a traditional mortgage is that even with a stellar 750 credit, no debt, not business, not school, not health, not otherwise, and with a modest 20K down payment, I still didn't have verifiable income. Remember when I said I regretted letting go of my W-2 income and not establishing an LLC faster? Yeah, don't let go of that income. I urge you, keep working that second job. It turns out that as a pass-through sole ownership entity, I can't verify or guarantee that I'll have my monthly mortgage payments. I have no pay stub. I have no proof of income. Even if I have that year's cash in the bank, the cash flow monthly isn't visible to the lending institutions. I can't describe to you how crushing that was to learn. I thought I had been working towards all the right check boxes that I've been told. I have good credit. I have no debt. I have my down payment. Turns out the down payment adage isn't exact. That 5 or 10% is good enough, but you'll also need extra for your closing costs and inspections. And while the sale is going through, you may not have access to all your liquid cash for some time period. Your credit line and bank accounts freeze up, and buying that new tractor may not be possible. Replacing a delivery vehicle that just broke during a pending real estate sale is beyond difficult with those frozen cash bank accounts. The 20% down payment only affords you the ability to bypass paying for additional mortgage insurance. If I had known all that after assessing the feasibility of my farm business that I ultimately wanted to buy land, I would have kept my W-2 employment, I would have incorporated as an LLC sooner, and I would have filed as an S-Corp as soon as possible. Investing less directly back into the farm's infrastructure and equipment, and I would have boosted my paychecks, um and been able to take W-2-worthy owner's draws through that S-Corp status, making my income verifiable, making it visible. One of the many caveats of S-Corp status is that you must assign yourself a salary wage that is customary and equivalent. This is a quote, customary and equivalent to the job position you would offer and hire for in your replacement. So you're not going to look into each state um, and I also pay attention to federal averages as well. A lot of people will tell you that you should be uh, earning over like 100K net in gross profit as well. There's some other fiscal responsible uh, metrics, uh, but ignore all those because ultimately what you want to do is prove that you have income. <laughs> um, so for farmers, this is, there's a different approach here per usual. So in Oregon, the average salary wage would be around 50K for farm managers. Um, In the past few years, I've earned closer to the low end average of 38K, but still within the average salary of a farm manager, according to the U.S. Labor and Industry site, um, which I'll also insist be put in the show notes. (laughs) Through the U.S. Labor and Industry site, it indicates a wider mean wage estimate between 38,000 and 130,000 salaries. 
That sounds amazing. I would love to make 130000 So do please check out the resources at Farm Commons and elsewhere to learn more about S-Corp status to explore if it's right for you. I know it's hard to choose between even a beat-up old tractor versus paying yourself, but if you're going to give farming a real go of it and you're facing a land purchase in your future, it's good to plan and know about this option sooner than later. The mortgage companies want to see two years of this verifiable income. Even if you inherit all the money, it may not be enough for you to get qualified for the appropriate total cost of the property because you can't prove your monthly cash flow viability. We need all farmers to survive and thrive to maintain our food security. And legal resiliency and financial sustainability are crucial pieces to that successful outcome. In order to build more resilient, equitable local food systems, farmers must be able to mitigate stressful conflict develop safe and strong boundaries through documentation such as leases and to build long-lasting foundations of stability for yourself, family, and future farmers. Thus ensuring affordable farmland in safe and accessible communities, it will take all the tools of community support, mediation, legal compliance, and conflict resolution skills and open minds to achieve. Believe you me, I know farming is a fairy of the moment profession and will tempt you to focus on just getting through today, but taking time to dream, envision, and write down the future you want for yourself in the food system will help us correct the systemic barriers while also navigating the reality of capitalism and the current concept of land ownership. Planning for this future will help ensure it's accessible when you are ready to jump fully into your business dreams and you won't be where I am now, scrambling for a potential fourth relocation and fighting to prove my financial worth from the last two years before I can access land ownership and ensure the long intergenerational access of indigenous food sovereignty. Limlet, thank you for hearing me out today. Um, And I hope that these resources and my experience can help inform you in how you move forward. I wish you all the best of luck and success. I'm rooting for all us small farmers out there. Thank you, Michelle, for sharing your story and deep wisdom with us, shining light on the hard lessons you've learned in pursuing a stable and sustainable home for your farm business. If you haven't listened to the stories from other Farm Commons fellows yet, make sure to find Hannah Hamilton of Buckle Farm, Martha McFarland of Hawkeye Buffalo and Cattle Ranch, and Katie Nixon of Greengate Family Farm in our podcast feed. Thanks for tuning in.